Heavy Hops is a Scorched Tundra production. You can access all our episodes with detailed show notes and information about upcoming events by visiting scorchedtundra.com slash heavy hops. Be sure to follow us on your preferred social media platform. Subscribe, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access podcasts. Thanks for supporting us and enjoy the show. It was about 2007, 2008. There was a bunch of people, I think, who'd traveled or lived overseas and seen what was happening in craft beer, particularly in the States, and then came back as like, why is this not happening here? And then I arrived in South Africa in 2010, but it boomed in about 2015. And then we had basically for two years, like a 100% increase in the number of craft breweries. Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name is Alexi. Joining me this week is Lucy Korn, a freelance writer and beverage industry consultant based in Cape Town. She is the editor of On Tap magazine, South Africa's only magazine dedicated to beer. Lucy is BJCP and Cicerone certified, having judged a number of competitions globally, including the African Beer Cup, the only Pan-African beer competition of which she is the co-founder. Her recent profile of South African hop grower Kaya Maloney for Good Beer Hunting was recognized by the North American Guild of Beer Writers for local reporting. And I wanted to shift this week's episode towards that part of the world. Listeners will remember Kaya from our interview with Gert Vandeval in July. Lucy reflects on her reporting on Kaya and the role she's created for herself in the South African beer community. We also discuss the resiliency consumers and craft brewers have shown during multiple alcohol bans in the COVID-19 pandemic, which has challenged the local beverage industry. You can find links to Lucy's website, beermistress.co.za, and work in the episode notes. Let's dive and get heavy. Lucy Korn, welcome to Heavy Hops. It's a pleasure having you on the show. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. It's it's super exciting to be chatting to someone in a different country for once. We've had uh, a couple folks from South Africa on the show before, Dr. Garth Cambray and Gert Vandeval as well. And they both really said, Lucy needs to be the next person from South Africa on the show. And so I'm really excited for that. No, it's, it's actually because we're so sort of um, isolated down here, you know. So any chance to, I don't know, feel a part of the wider global beer community is always awesome. One of the things that's happened this year for you has been your reporting and your story on Kaya Maloney, a hop grower in Johannesburg. And that was published in Good Beer Hunting earlier this year. And that was recognized by the North American Guild of Beer Writers for local reporting, which is an awesome accolade. I want to get to that point. But first, let's talk a little bit about you and how you kind of found beer in South Africa. How did you sort of find your way into the world of writing about beer? Yeah, it was very random. So I'm not actually originally from South Africa. I'm from the UK. Um, and uh, I, I moved here well, for a year, uh, 11 years ago. <laughs> Cape Town has this way of of, uh, of doing that to people. You know, people come for a holiday and then just don't leave. And we'd been uh, with my then boyfriend, now husband. Uh, we, we traveled here. We, we actually met on an overland trip to Africa. And when we got to Cape Town, we were like, Ooh, we could have stayed there. And it was always in the back of our minds. And when we came back, we just came for a year. And I was working as a freelance writer, mostly travel. You know, if you're in Europe or we were living in Asia before, it's very easy to hop around different countries. But in South Africa, it's you're, you're far from everywhere and it's expensive to travel. So I was like, I, I need to write about other things that are not just travel. You know, I've always been interested in food and drink. And um, first I looked at wine and we'd actually got very into beer when we lived in, we lived in South Korea beforehand. And we'd seen the craft beer movement really take off there. And we'd started homebrewing there. And when we came down here, we, were, we could see from when we traveled here and when we came, you know, backpacked here and when we came back, things were, you could see something was just starting then in terms of, um, of craft beer. So I was like, oh, well, I'll write a blog about craft beer. You know, and it was for a, a travel magazine. And, and it just took off. Like it, it really, so I used to say I was, you know, I'm a travel writer who sometimes writes about beer. Now I'm a beer writer who very occasionally travels at the moment with everything that's going on. And it just ended up taking over them. I was approached by a photographer who wanted to do a book and we did it. We actually, well, I, I did, I did a book with him and then a second book about craft beer in South Africa. Then was approached by a publisher who wanted to do a magazine and it's just, 
completely taken over every corner of my life in the most magnificent way. What was the hook for you? Everyone has their sort of aha moments. So, you know, I'm, I'm from the UK, so I was a beer drinker through university, but mostly a lager drinker. Never really got into real ales in the UK, if I'm honest. Not, not then, anyway, obviously since. Um, it was when we were living in South Korea, and we'd actually been there once, and then we left. And then when we, and my husband had tried, or my now husband, I should say, uh, he tried homebrewing, and his first batch was just, just terrible. You know, he hadn't, hadn't quite grasped the whole temp importance of temperature control during fermentation. It was it was really bad. And, you know, and he quickly got disillusioned with it. Then when we went back, he was like, okay, I'm going to get into, I want to brew my own beer. And he, he looked up to the home brewing club and we lived in like a suburb of Seoul or like outskirts of, of, of way, way, way out of Seoul. And I, I just, I'll always remember, he said to me, Lucy, do you, do you recognize this guy? And I looked, I was like, oh, yeah, he's the guy with the dog. So in a city, I don't know what, Seoul's got like, I don't know, 20 million people. And the guy who ran the homebrewing club for the entire country lived in our building. <laughs> so we used to see him. Everyone knew him. He was a Canadian guy and everyone knew him because he had a golden retriever. And everyone in Korea has little handbag dogs, you know. And he had this fabulous golden retriever. So we all knew he was Maggie's owner. Nobody knew his name. He was Maggie's, Maggie's person. And we were like, wow, this is incredible. In a city or in a country of 60 million people, whatever it is, the guy who runs the homebrewing club lives in our building. So we awkwardly, we just kind of waited for him, lobby <laughs> of the building and pounced on him. And um, we ended up going to his apartment one day and he got a kegerator and he got his like signature beer, which was called Death by Hops. And it was a double IPA. And at this point, I'd never had an American... Uh, IP. I, I, I don't think I'd had a beer with American hops. You know, it's, it's a good a good few years ago. And it was just this, wow, man. I just remember thinking, wow, why have I been drinking anything else? I want to know why this tastes different to this and, and all that kind of thing. So that was really my, yeah, he's actually, his name's Rob Titley, just in case he's listening. He's since moved back to Canada last year. And uh, I think he's working for a brewery now in Ottawa, so, or somewhere around Toronto. In a sense, you have a background of traveling and of living in a lot of different places. Beer was something that has been woven into your experiences of living in different places. Yeah, definitely. I think for me, you know, some people travel and they want to see, uh, I don't know, churches or certain architecture or they want to, I don't know, listen to local bands or whatever. For me, it was always food and drink, not necessarily just beer or, um, you know, wine or whatever, or just like weird local beverages. You know, I traveled in Mongolia and they have like fermented horse milk, not one of my favorites, but I wanted to try it. So uh, food and drink has, has always been sort of the focus of my of my travels. But it was actually when I met my my husband, um, he'd, so he's from Canada and he'd been working in pubs in the UK. And, and that's where he got interested in beer. And then, you know, we met and we, we liked to drink together. You know, we'd, we'd have the occasional beer together. And then we actually did our first brewery tour together. It was a, quite a big lager brewery in Ethiopia. And then it just, we started traveling together and we would, you know, we would, markets were a big thing for us, especially food markets. But then we would always try and find either like a traditional local beer or somewhere where we could do a, a, um, a brewery visit or a brewery tour. And, and then that, sort of became amplified in South Korea. You start appreciating what goes into making great beer or even a good beer for the time because that was when you good. <laughs> and yeah, that's really where it kind of kicked off. Then we came to South Africa and we were really here at the start of, you know, the inverted commas craft beer revolution here in South Africa. We were, it was just very good timing. And we happened to be here when it kicked off, which was great. You know, we've seen it grow from pretty much nothing to where we are today. Just for chronological understanding here, when would you say things really started to take off there in the, I guess it would be sort of like a third wave context because there was obviously a heavily inspired European beer made there for a, a long time and that there's tons of huge breweries in Africa owned by conglomerates that own the market, but this would really be sort of a third wave of people. Can you give me like a little bit of a timeline on that? Yes, I mean, uh, our like, oldest or first microbrew was 1983 but then they they were flying solo for decades um there's a brewery in cape town that's been going since 2000 and when we were when we were here as travelers and um, we went to that brewery and um and they're still going 
you know, and, and so they were one of the sort of early, there's, there's another one actually um, close to Durban, which is, it was either 96 or 97, Nottingham Road it's called. And we also, when we were traveling around South Africa, we went there and they're still very much, you know, they're kind of thriving now. But they were, they were also sort of flying solo. It was about 2007, 2008. There was a bunch of people, I think, who'd traveled or, or lived overseas and seen what was happening in craft beer, particularly in the States. And then came back, I was like, why is this not happening here? And then I arrived in South Africa in 2010. And at that time, there were probably like five brands, you know, and I say brands because two of the most important uh, catalysts for craft beer in South Africa were contract brewers. They didn't have their own breweries. Um, and they were very, very crucial. They they made beer cool in, in South Africa, you know, and, and, and because it was more about branding, not more about branding, it's not to say the beer wasn't good, but they were able to focus on branding uh, because someone else was brewing the beer. So they were, you know, they didn't have to focus on both sides. So that's now like 2010, 2011, but it boomed in about 2015. And then we had basically for two years, like a hundred percent increase in the number of craft breweries, pretty much 80%, whatever. Then, then it started to peter out. And I mean, oh, let's, let's, let's be completely honest in those, especially sort of 20, I don't know, 2013, 2014, 2015, we started getting what I like to call the bandwagon jumpers because people are like, oh, craft beer is cool now. I'll bet I'll make some money doing that. Everyone was opening craft breweries and God, there was some dreadful stuff out there. You know, it's people who've never brewed a beer before and people were actually making kits and selling it, you know, making beer from, you know, like the Cooper's kits or whatever and then selling or, or, or not fermenting at the right temperature or whatever. There was some dreadful stuff. Then we had a bit of a flat line in 2018-ish. Then, of course, with the whole pandemic, things have it changed the landscape more than it would have done. But do you know what I think it's done? I think it's fast-tracked. So a lot of, we've had quite a few closures. It's been nowhere near as bad as people thought. A lot of the breweries that closed, to be blunt about it, needed to close and were probably going to close anyway. Maybe they closed a year or two before they were going to, but they were going to close because it's changed. The scene has changed and you can't get away with putting craft beer out there anymore. You know, for a time it was just like, oh, it's craft beer. It tastes different. And so people were drinking and going, I really like this, but I guess it's craft. So not realizing that it was unintentionally sour or chlorophenolic or whatever. Um, so that's changed a lot. And now I, I can say we've got fewer breweries. Well, we've probably got the same number of breweries we had like three years ago because there's been a few new ones and then we've lost a few. Actually, no, we've got fewer breweries than we had three years ago. But the overall quality of beer is definitely better. It says a lot about people's character. And I think people in South Africa are very party people. And, you know, I think it says a lot about character for the number of closures to have been so small. I mean, that says a lot about their dedication and their desire to continue on in pretty adverse circumstances. It's always interesting how people sort of find their different places in beer. And so for you, that wasn't necessarily starting your own brewery, but rather working in all of these other parts that support that industry. So that would be writing. You're also BJCP judge, recently a certified Cicerone. And you started the African Beer Cup, which is the only Pan-African competition. How do you kind of connect all of these dots? Or is it like a thing where one thing really leads to another? You're like, oh, I want to know more about this. All of a sudden, becoming BJCP certified is like the thing that you do to obtain that knowledge. Yeah, I really don't know, to be honest. I don't know how it all, like I say, it was it was supposed to be a sideline, like a you know, if I run out of travel articles, I'll write a little thing about beer. And somehow the balance switched. I think it's just, you know, it's such a wonderful industry. And I mean, the vast majority of my friends work in the industry one way or whether they're brewers or they're importers or whatever. You know, I mean, we came here not knowing anybody really, and neither of us being from South Africa. And everybody always says that Cape Town's very sort of cliquey and it's difficult to, you know, I know expats here who have struggled to make friends locally and you'll go to sometimes you know if we have friends who are from the uk or the us or, or germany and when you go to their houses for a braai barbecue braai as it's called in south africa almost everybody is foreign and our things like the vast majority of our friends are south african and i feel like it's just we managed to we happen to be in this industry where the people are just awesome you know and like super welcoming and no one cares what anyone's been doing before or whatever it's just it's just like a really I don't know, it's, it's just such an, 
a nice vibe around the industry. And somehow, I suppose it was like, well, actually, this is more fun. And I'm earning less money doing this, but I'm having more fun. And that's really more important. So, yeah, I mean, the BJCP thing was just, you know, I don't know whether I was going to say credit where it's due. I sometimes don't know whether it's credit or not to my husband. So my husband was very involved in beer when we first arrived. And now he doesn't work in the beer industry at all, but he pushes me a lot to do things. So he set up the original BJCP exam, for example. And he also decided that starting our own competition was a good idea. And he's now stepped back from it. He's like, here's here's this awesome thing we're going to do. Now you do it. I'm going to go and do something else. So as I said, I'm not sure whether I should say credit is due or blame is due. But yeah, he kind of pushes me to, in, in a nice way, you know, and I'm like, I really think it would be great for you and for the industry if this happened. And I think I need someone to do that. I don't, I'm not, I'm not lazy, but I'm comfortable, you know, and if, if I'm happy just doing what I'm doing and if someone doesn't say, well, why don't you do this as well, then I won't. So, yeah, it's just one thing leads to another. And the the thing is, the industry here is small. So if somebody is searching for someone in beer, they often find me. And then maybe, you know, so then someone comes to me and says, listen, we need a judge for our, uh, we're doing a a competition about label design and we do wine and now we want to do beer. And they find me. And, you know, and then someone's doing, I'm looking for a consultant on such and such. And they find me because when I arrived here, nobody was writing about beer. And 11 years down the line, pretty much still nobody is writing about beer except me. So it's like, you know, you become quite visible. And when someone's searching, they find you. And then all these opportunities come your way. And as a freelancer, I just say yes to everything because you're always worried no one's going to ever offer you anything again. So it's like, say yes, and we'll work out how to fit it in later. (laughs) It's just interesting that you are sort of like a connecting piece for so many different, like important facets of the industry, but you also have a formalized knowledge set by being BJCP certified and also having run competitions. So do you think that having that sort of formalized knowledge has been valuable to you and to have helped you be a service to the community? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the thing is here, there's very little beer education or uh, the right phrase, but, you know, I mean, to become a brewer, for example, I mean, you can do the IBD from the UK, you know, it's like distance, but like in universities, for example, there are no programs to study brewing science. And there are no real courses, you know, to become a beer sommelier or any of any of that kind of thing. So you really have to sort of, you know, of your own accord. And I think a lot of people can't or don't or don't know about it. You know, so, I mean, I was the, um, the first person in Africa, to my knowledge, uh, to do the certified Cicerone. I've actually just sat the written exam for the advanced Cicerone, currently awaiting results. It was a, quite a hectic exam, so we'll see. We'll see how that goes. I, I do think there's a certain with the cicerone, for example. You know, in the states, I'm, I'm sure it helps a lot if you want to, you know, work front of house or, you know, I don't know, do consulting for bars or, or whatever. In South Africa, nobody knows what a cicerone is. And um, someone said to me the other day, "Well, why have you done the advanced one?" And I'm like, "Well, actually, it's for me, you know, because it doesn't really advance my career, but it's like I want to study for it. It gives me a purpose to learn more stuff." you know, more more beer-related, yeah, everything. And um, I guess it's almost like it's a personal challenge. But it does, although it's not like no one's coming in South Africa trying to hire a Cicerone because nobody knows what a Cicerone is. But I think when you say that and then people, you say, oh, I'm, you know, a certified Cicerone, they'll Google it and be like, oh, oh well, maybe we could work with you because you're not just a drunk. <laughs> you're... you're yeah, you've got some formal qualifications to go with it, sort of thing. So, yeah, I mean, but we're very much, you know, the whole thing's still in its infancy here in terms of, you know, for example, beer being in fine dining restaurants and that sort of thing. We've got a long way to go. Yeah, and I think definitely if you're looking to offer a service to anyone, having qualifications is uh, part of it. And also just having that also shows other people that it's something that people can do there. So there's a lot of value to setting that kind of precedence. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's been, I have a lot of people contacting me asking either they want to become a BJCP judge. How can I do that? You know, where's the course? And I'm like, there's not a course. It's you with you, you know, your app and, and tasting beers. And, and, and a lot, there is quite a lot of interest in doing the Cicerone down here. And, and that's certainly, you know, people sort of start talking about it and they're like, what is that? Well, how do you pronounce that? What is that? You know, and start looking into it and like, oh, wow. I, had, I mean, still, like, people are like, oh, wow, you can be a qualified beer judge. That's the thing. 
Yeah, and so and it does at least kind of gradually, slowly spreads the word that there are beer qualifications that you can do. Let's talk a little bit about your piece that you did on Kaya Maloney and his project in Johannesburg. You set up this story really, really well by sort of describing where his operation is. And there's a lot that one can sort of imagine and read into like political dimensions and social dimensions based on those first three sentences of the story. Tell me a little bit about one sort of how you found Kaya and what your sort of impression was like driving up to his operation. And it obviously came to mind to you that this was a place with certain type of historic precedents in the country. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing was so Kaya actually contacted me, I don't know, maybe a year ago, year and a half ago on Twitter, you know, and I, I forget he'd he'd he followed me on Twitter and then he messaged, he was looking for contact deals, details of somebody or something. I, I can't remember. And it was just kind of, you know, in the back of my mind and every, so I followed him back and we'd, I'd see very occasionally stuff that was going on. And I hadn't actually been up to Johannesburg for quite a while. And then I went, it was, a, I think it was the start of last year because you know, we, we had a, a sort of a ban on local travel for a while in South Africa and you couldn't, you know, and then as soon as it was lifted, it was like, I'm going to book flights to somewhere. I don't care where it is. And I hadn't actually visited. There was quite a lot of stuff going on with microbreweries. And, and so, and I've got a lot of friends in Joburg. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to book. And I was just planning out my thing. And I was like, oh, wait, there was that guy. Now, let me see if I can find that guy and, and see what's going on. So we set up this thing. And, and I'll be honest, I thought it was going to be like this little, you know, we'd have like two rows of hops and little things. You know, I thought it would be a little a sidebar, basically, to another article. Um, and I'd spotted in half an hour or something to pop in, take a couple of photos, say hi. And when he, when he messaged me, he, he said, um, I was, you know, how to find him. And he said, set your GPS to like the um, Constitution Hill parking garage. And I was like, ooh, okay. So central Johannesburg has a certain reputation for crime. And being not like, I don't spend that much time in Joburg. I'm not super comfortable in central Joburg. And, um, and when I got that, I pulled into the car park and I was like, hmm, this is, what am I doing here? I'm by myself. No one knows where I am. And I had to wake the security guard up, basically. So he's like, um, I'm, and I, I'm trying to explain to him. And, and I'm saying hops, and of course, this guy's got no idea what I'm talking about. And I was like, he's got a greenhouse on the roof. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I'm like, okay, I'm in the right place. Drive into this car park. It's completely empty. And all these episodes of 24, you know, where people get jumped in the car park, pop into my head. And I'm like, what are you doing here? And then he says, go through that door. And I'm like, really, that door? And this is like just a random doorway. It was almost like a, a wall that was just slightly wider than the door. And I'm like, where is that even going? You know, like, open the door. And I was really hesitant, like, looking behind me. And looking, there's no other security guards back in his chair, sleep again. And I go up the stairs. It was like this makeshift, like a scaffolding stairway. And I'm like, this. I, I literally, basically out loud, said, Lucy, this is where you die. <laughs> like, what are you doing? But they go onto the rooftop and there's no one there and I can see the greenhouse, but I'm like, I don't know how to get to it. I just stood there and went, hello, is anybody here? And then he comes out and he's like this super nice guy and he's got this amazing story. And I ended up, I'd got a, a meeting afterwards with some guys from a brewery there and I had to message him and say, guys, listen, I'm running really late because I ended up staying for two hours with Kaya. You know, and he told me, and at first we're just standing there and, I'm, and I was like, wait, 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 I'm sorry. I need to take all the notes on this. This story is, you know, it's just his, um, his passion for it and how he he is sort of the trials and tribulations and stuff and I was like wow there's a real story here like I say I just thought I was dropping in and um, it, I quickly realized oh this is not a sidebar this is a this is a feature or several. <laughs> There's a lot of adversity that is woven into this story that I think is an important part of the issues that small producers have in South Africa. And that can also pertain to spirit producers or possibly even wine producers. And when we're talking about hops, this is an area that South African Brewers, which is a subsidiary of AB InBev, says you shouldn't be growing hops in this region. And so that it's not conducive climate-wise and obviously the area of South Africa that is conducive from a climate perspective is an area where they have a vested interest in all the farms. One of the types of adversity that you kind of highlight there 
is the fact that he is someone who's doing the thing he's not supposed to do in the place that he's not supposed to be doing it, right? Yeah, I mean, it's so, we, we fall, South Africa falls just within the sort of typical latitudes for hop growing, but not quite, like our summer days, not quite long enough and, and such. And Johannesburg just doesn't really have the climate, but because he's growing hydroponic, you know, he can uh, manipulate the, the climate and the length of day and all that kind of stuff. And it's just like Johannesburg's this gritty, really, I don't know. Yeah, I, don't, I can't think of a better word, gritty city. And it was it was mind-blowing to walk out onto this rooftop. in It's it's an area of the city centre. Okay, so he's at Constitution Hill, which is sort of a historical uh, attraction now, a uh, former prison. But it's right on the cusp of a quite a notorious area of the city and and then suddenly there's just this greenhouse and, and it was i remember i took some photos and posted them a couple of beer groups and i'm like oh, i'm just hanging out in joburg and the, the great thing the amazing thing about this nobody knew about this guy before i, I started you know tweeting about it but like nobody knew but I thought, where is this and i got so many messages from brewers i want to go see this guy i want to buy his hops i want to talk to him you know but nobody he was just doing his thing he was still in a sort of trial phase and these photographs of the hops that are like, wait, what? This is happening in Johannesburg? Because Johannesburg is not exactly known for its, you know, um, agriculture and gardens or anything like that. So, yeah, it was just a, a combination of, you know, he's, he's a very charismatic guy with a cool story and like super intelligence. I don't know, just the way he tells his story. I could have listened to him all day. And then he's in this incredibly unlikely location, really, in so many ways. So it was just... Yeah, it was the, the, definitely my favorite story I've written, certainly in the past year, if not in a good while. You're listening to Heavy Hops. We'll have more from Lucy Korn in a moment. There are a few things happening in the world of Heavy Hops and Scorched Tundra that I want to share. You can find tickets to Scorched Tundra Present shows at scorchedtundra.com slash tickets. Be sure you're in Chicago on Labor Day weekend 2022 to experience the next Scorched Tundra Festival. We've also created a crowdfunding source for all things Heavy Hops and Scorched Tundra. If you love what we do and want to support us, find the donate link in the episode notes and give what you'd like. Giving any amount will grant you access to our Discord community and an opportunity to contribute to making this show and Scorched Tundra content the best it can be. Please also consider sharing this episode with the nerds in your life, rating us, leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, which helps others find us. Thanks for this moment. Back to our conversation with Lucy Korn. Did visiting him and seeing sort of this type of operation in this type of place that you didn't really imagine it to be in make you sort of wonder about possibilities? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know what, at the time, maybe not at the time, I was just so sort of wowed by what was going on. But so he actually, um, I didn't know about Kurt in, in Pretoria. And then he, because I'm asking him, like, where did you get your rhizomes from? Uh, and then he starts talking. About, and I was like, I'm sorry, what? There's a farmer in Pretoria growing hops. Because Pretoria is even, you know, further north still. And just unlikely. And, and he, you know, passes me the, the details. I mean, I end up then just cold calling Kurt and telling him, listen, I've chatted to Kaya. And then I find myself following Kurt down farm tracks in the middle of nowhere also again like what am i doing again again no one knows where i am i don't know this guy <laughs> nicest guy in the world he is you know went and had iced tea with his family and stuff um but it, but it really was it was actually now now you've now you've asked the question was just like wow there is stuff going on out there that we have no idea about and that you know it, it so i've since been um it's got a a, a whatsapp group hop growers in Africa and now all of a sudden there's like you know this guy's in Zimbabwe and in Nigeria and Tanzania and he, and he also he sends rhizomes or whatever to them and it's just like wow I I didn't know this was a thing here it was yeah yeah it was it was quite a a very uplifting story as well I mean it's, you know all the nonsense that's sort of in the depressing stories that we've had and it was just this really like wow there's something super cool going on here that we didn't know about and I think one of the things that I sort of have learned from Kurt and from Garth Cambrai as well is that agriculture 
can be a really sort of powerful economic stimulus. And that can also be something that's useful for all of the populations that live in South Africa in a country where finding work is hard for some people and there's a lot of people that have economically disadvantaged backgrounds. And so it can be a really positive thing from that perspective. And all beverages require some type of agriculture. And so the notion is that whether it's beekeeping or whether it's hop growing, there's the manufacturing side that the producers have, but then also there's the agricultural side. You can teach people to operate equipment, but there's something sort of instinctual about working land for a lot of people too, that this can be a source of economic empowerment. Yeah, and I think um, Kaya has big plans to, like his... His rooftop thing in Joburg is like his um, the trial basically for hydroponic hop growing uh, because it's not something that's you know obviously there are a few people around the world doing it but it's not something that's been hugely trialed uh, and his his long term thing is to go much bigger and then obviously that's gonna filter down and and I don't know catch on and there'll be other people uh, who 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 get into hop growing and. Yeah, I think it, it definitely, I mean, I mean you, you hit the nail on the head that we, like South Africa has a high unemployment rate and it's got a lot higher throughout the pandemic, been a lot, a lot of, of jobs lost. And um, yeah, it's definitely, I, I think it's, it's actually something a lot of people have been sort of getting back to the, the roots that maybe, you know, their parents or grandparents worked in agriculture in some way and then they end up doing something else and then sort of seem to come back to it. I've actually met a few people in the past year who've, yeah, I think there's something very satisfying uh, I'm actually growing hops in my garden. I'm a terrible gardener. You know, I'm one of those people that can kill a cactus. And when I went to see Gert, I mean, I came back. I came back from that trip actually with the most. Usually, when I come back from a trip, I've got a suitcase full of beer. And on this occasion, I came back with just so much like beer. But then he he makes um, whiskey, and he wanted me to bring some for some whiskey club in Cape Town. So I've got like whiskey in plastic bottles, and then and I've got hop rhizomes and all sorts of other stuff. And and the hop and I just I was busy and I'm like oh god I need to plant these things and then I said to him listen they they dried out and I don't know if anything's going to happen and then all of a sudden a couple of months later I was like wait a minute and I took a photo I was like are these are these hops growing here you know and he's like yes they're growing so I've got hops growing in my in my garden I mean there's never going to be a harvest right I'll pluck a couple of cones off and wet hop at the table chuck them straight in my beer but I think there's something so um, satisfying in having grown something. There may be something to be said for reconnecting with the things that we have taken for granted. I think generally speaking, that's something that a lot of people have sort of come to appreciate again over the last two years is being able to reconnect with things that they had previously uh, taken for granted or maybe forgot about. Yeah, very much so. I think if there's, if there's one good thing, and there's maybe only one, I think well, maybe two. I think we've become weirdly more connected with people, despite the barriers that have been put between us. You know, like I've become much more connected with my friends and family in the UK because of Zoom and and everything. And then I think this, yeah, people sort of, I don't know, we're, we're brewing and making jam and making cheese and all these things at home that, that they weren't doing before. And now suddenly they've got this, I don't know, back to our roots kind of thing, because they were like, well, what can I do while at home? Well, I'll make cheese. That would be nice. So yeah, I think the only positives that have come out of this giant mess. <laughs> Another sort of piece that we can weave into this work about Kaya and thinking about agriculture in South Africa is a little bit bigger. And that is the recent coming together of Heineken and Distill Group Holdings and Namibia Breweries to form a huge drinks conglomerate. And essentially what I'm reading out of this is Heineken is looking to continue to compete with Saab, a subsidiary of AB, for a very big emerging drinks market that has a very young population and that will only continue to be valuable. One of the things that listeners may remember from our conversation with Kurt is that we talked a little bit about Heineken's sort of interest in local agriculture and philosophical commitment to using local ingredients. And so obviously Kaya's hop operation isn't going to end up in every single uh, Heineken drink produced, but there is something to be said for the opportunities that are presented for agriculturalists or for 
people that are looking to get into that industry, Heineken's commitment to local, and then at the same time, all of these global supply chain issues, barley prices increasing. There's this interesting moment that I'm seeing right now where Heineken can actually be pushed more towards local ag. And so I was just kind of curious if you kind of had any thoughts on these different topics. Yeah, I mean, I, to be, I will be honest, I, I dropped the ball a little bit on the whole Heineken style thing. I mean, my understanding is that the, because Heineken already had a a partnership, they had, a I think, a minor um, stake in Namibia breweries, and they've had a, a partnership or some kind of, you know, business understanding or whatever with Distel. And I think their interest is is as much in spirits and sliders as it is in beer, because Distel don't, Distel don't do um, beers. Uh, they're very much in the in the spirit side. I, I don't know. I know Kaya's one of his motivations was that the craft brewers here are reliant either on imports for hops or on SAB for hops. And and one of his things was wanting to give the small craft brewers another alternative. So I I can't speak for him, but I I, I feel like maybe his allegiance would be to the smaller craft brewers before you know, a bigger company like Heineken. Of course, if he was, I'm sure if he was producing on a big enough scale and they wanted to buy it all, then go for it, of course. <laughs> like, no one would blame him for doing so. But yeah, it's, it's actually something, there's, there's been a lot of things going on in South Africa in the past couple of weeks. And the Heineken deal um, has has kind of, I wouldn't say passed me by, but I haven't been paying as much attention to it as I very much should have been. So, I, you know, I can't speak with any kind of um, authority on it. <laughs> That's understandable. I think it's an interesting thing, especially with the recent sorts of like rises in barley prices and how producers big and small in the U.S. are being squeezed in multiple sorts of channels of the supply chain. There's obviously opportunities for things that Kaya is doing and what Hurt is doing as sort of like an enabler for people on the ag side. I kind of wonder if there's sort of like a bigger picture that can also be in incorporated because large breweries like Saab, for example, they can intimidate small producers and they can intimidate markets with posturing. Having a large sort of counterweight that also is interested in local can be beneficial for everyone with the buckets underneath those two. Yeah, I mean, in the city's defense, they, they've generally had a pretty good uh, relationship with the craft beer scene in South Africa. Things did change a little bit when ABI uh, took over South African breweries, but still, I, I know there was a big thing in the US, 2017, I think it was, about ABI keeping all the South African hops themselves and no one was about to have any. And it kind of it blew up in this hopgate was uh, what people were calling it. And, and I actually, I, at that time, I was occasionally writing for all about beer and I messaged and said, listen, I'd like to write this from a South African perspective because we don't see it the same way here. So the so SAP hop farms, obviously their first responsibility is to provide hops for, for their own beers. But when one of the clauses in the takeover when ABMBF took, took over SAB was to provide hops to the South African microbreweries, and they still do, because it was reported in the, in the American press, or American beer press, I should say, as they're keeping it all for themselves and craft brewers are not allowed any. And that wasn't the case. It was that American craft brewers weren't going to get any, pretty much. But the, they were looking after themselves first and then South African craft brewers. And, you know, maybe a little bit less so now, but there's always been actually a fairly good relationship between SAB and the craft brewers. You know, it's, it's, there's not been... I think it depends, I suppose, if, if you're talking about brewers, like the brewers, they'll get together and they'll chat and, hey, can I, you know, I'd like to try these hops. Oh, come to the brewery and blah, blah, blah. And I want you to taste, you know, craft brewer says to SAP Brett, I'd like to taste my beer. I've got a problem, but I don't know what it is, blah, blah, blah. It's very different on the sales floor, you know, than it's, it's war. And it's like, I will offer you this if you put my beer on sort of thing. But um, typically they've had quite a good relationship. So... Yeah, I I don't know. I feel like we haven't had this sort of animosity against the big breweries that some countries have had. 
That's an interesting perspective that what you saw happening that was reported in 2017, I mean, this was not just stuff that was reported in Good Beer Hunting, but this was also in mainstream media too. One, it's interesting that that became a thing in mainstream media here, and also that there was a pretty different perception on the ground. And I think this dynamic that you were describing of like the people that are producing the stuff behind the scenes because they do the same thing and they're involved in it at a different point of the trade, they tend to be sort of similarly minded and wanting to help each other because their pursuit is mutual in that they're trying to create the best thing. They understand that because you have a shared goal and that is to create something that people are going to enjoy, then you're more likely to want to help the other because you see it as like a rising tide. And then sales is obviously a very self-interested thing. And if you sell things, you're probably paid based on what you sell. That can create some complexity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think that's the same in every industry all over the place. I think, you know, the brewers, they, they actually, they want to sit around and talk about beer. They want to taste each other's beers. But, and, and they, you know, they drink what they want to drink and they respect other people's beers and what have you. But you, if you're on sales incentives and stuff, then you do what needs to be done in order to meet your targets. Let's kind of like broaden out here a little bit. You sort of mentioned earlier, I want to come back to something you talked about earlier, and that is that the South African government's response to COVID-19 has been, you know, shutdowns and then enforced dry periods. Unfortunately, it sort of sounds like there may be one coming up as of the recording. What sort of surprised you about the resiliency of people? Because that was something you alluded to earlier, is that you were surprised that fewer places didn't close. Can you sort of elaborate on some of that a little bit? Yeah, so I mean, our first lockdown started, it was the end of uh, March uh, 2020, and we were hit with a, a complete alcohol ban. So there was no no purchase, no sell, no production. FAB had to close down. They could not produce. It was catastrophic, really. It was absurd. Um so there was yeah, there was there was no it was like no non-essential work. So breweries weren't allowed to produce. I think they were allowed to check on beer in the ferment that was already in the fermenter, you know, because otherwise it was gonna go to waste. And uh yeah, it went on I, I can't even remember now, but I think throughout um 2020 it was sort of 19 weeks or something like that on and off you know we had one then they then they lifted the ban and then they put it back again then they lifted it then they brought it back just in time for the new year period uh, the thinking behind it or the uh, at least the reasoning the public reasoning behind it is that there's a lot of alcohol related trauma you know like there's drink driving or domestic abuse or whatever uh, that fills up hospital beds so the the, the explanation for the booze bans was we need to stop people drinking so that we can keep beds free for COVID patients, which somewhat makes sense. But if people feel like that it's now just being used as a way to, I don't know, control or whatever, I don't know. Let's not get too far into that. But at the start, I think at the end of the first alcohol ban, which was maybe about seven weeks or something like that, maybe 11 weeks, I forget now, the Craft Beer Association of South Africa had done a survey and then they released the results of the survey. It was maybe Ju July of 2020 and saying that 90% of South African craft breweries said that they were in danger of closing if the alcohol ban continued. Well, we've had nowhere near that many. It was a, a double-edged sword because we all know what happens in prohibition and what, you know, if you ban something, it's never been easier to get hold of, let's say. So <laughs> it was, yeah, people went officially allowed to sell, but unofficially were possibly in some cases selling more because, of course, SAP couldn't sell bootlegging. Uh, so then the craft brewers were, were able to sell to people that weren't normally buying craft beer. So it was actually wonderful. We had this period where um, restaurants were selling uh, lockdown coffee, as it was called, and lockdown tea. And you'd see people, if you walk past a restaurant, so if you saw people with teapots, you knew there was wine in that teapot and people were drinking wine out of their teacups. And and you go past and, and so you know beer poured into a mug looks hell of a lot like a cappuccino from a distance <laughs> and uh, you'd see an amazing number of people drinking espressos around a table and there's actually shots of tequila in there. Um, and it was actually it was kind of 
it was wonderful in a way because the whole thing was so boring. Like we weren't allowed to do anything. And then suddenly there was this like naughty thing that everyone was doing. But it was a double-edged sword because the craft brewers were, were actually selling to people that wouldn't normally be buying. You know, normally they'd be buying SAP beers from the liquor store. And, and I think that played a huge part in, in the fact that not as many places closed. We've had quite a lot of places that closed but were sold and then reopened. Most of the time under the same name or maybe they changed names. So, you know, we lost, you know, I don't know, I can't think of any names in the world, but X Brewery, and then it was reopened as XY Brewery. Or, you know, we lost John's Brewery, but then someone else called John bought it and reopened it as John's Brewery. So uh, there's been quite a bit of changing hands. Uh, there's been quite a few contract brands that have disappeared, but in some cases I was like, didn't they close like three years ago? I haven't heard anything from them. So they've only been, to be honest with you, a handful that you were like, oh, wow, I didn't see that coming. That's sad. That's like a proper COVID. It was actually really bizarre because I do kind of consulting in terms of like the state of the industry and, you know, uh, what consumers are looking for and, and so on. And last year, I've, I've never had so many people contact me for, uh, you know, I'm looking to buy this brewery. And I would just say to you, really? You're aware what's going on in South Africa, right? And there's a very good chance that you'll, you won't be able to sell your product. But yeah, there was a, a huge upturn as well. The other thing that happens during prohibition, of course, is that uh, home brewing becomes quite popular indeed. And uh, we, we, we had a huge upsurge. It, like the home brewing stores, almost everyone, they had to take the websites offline last year because they could not cope. They were overwhelmed with the amount of orders. And they were like, we, we just, like, with their little, you know, their mom and pop type things or their two guys in a basement. And they're like, we cannot cope with this level of, of interest. And it's actually, it has an, a nice, coming back to what we discussed earlier, that when you understand how a product's made, you have more respect for it. And so maybe, you know, you've, you've always drunk SAB, then you start home brewing, and then you're like, oh, wow, that's interesting. If I use this hop instead of this one, or if I change this temperature, or if I add this malt, that changes everything. And then you're like, let me go to my local. So I'd, I'd like to think that craft brewers have captured some of those new home brewers as well. So it actually hasn't been as negative as it could have been. Other industries, our tourism industry, I am weeping for at the moment. You know, there's, I don't know how they're going to claw back from this latest travel ban that's been inflicted on South Africa just yesterday. But um, in terms of the, of certainly beer, it could have been a lot worse. We're not out of the woods and we don't know what's going to happen if we might be hit with another alcohol ban and, you know, we, we don't know what's coming. But it's it, it's not been as bad as we thought. In closing here, I want to ask like a little bit of an open-ended question. And in paying attention to things that are happening in South Africa, I've learned quite a bit about agriculture and it's been an interesting lens to look through. And so I guess for you as someone who's an international person, lived in a number of different places, and you have a lot of different perspectives, why do you feel it's important for people in Europe or North America to keep an eye on what's happening in South Africa from a craft beer standpoint? I think, um, I mean, we're one of the youngest um, craft beer scenes around the world. And, and I think it's so until quite recently, it's very much been originally sort of in, you know, 2010, 2011, a lot of people started with lagers and then we're following German beer stars. So everybody had a vice beer, you know, and people would do a, a some kind of a variation of a Kolsch maybe. And then sort of went into Irish. So everyone At one time, everybody had a blonde ale of some description, a vice, a lagerish kind of something and a stout. And then you went through and then the influence from the US, so everybody was attempting an IPA. And then, of course, a couple of years ago, everyone's doing a New England IPA and sort of following trends from elsewhere. In the past three or four years, three years probably, there's been much more focus on what's our beer identity, like what are we bringing to the table? And there's been a very, you know, some people are like, well, we'll do the, all South, the South African pale ale with all South African ingredients. And to be completely honest with you, our malt here is not, it's designed for use in, in adjunct lagers. You know, so it's it's to use all South African malt in a pale ale or whatever. You, it's almost like you're doing it for the sake of using local ingredients, not necessarily because it's what's best for your beer. And then there's been quite a few people using uh, uniquely South African ingredients. So we have this amazing uh, floral biodiversity in, in 
in South Africa, particularly in the Western Cape, the province where Cape Town is. And this stuff is crazy fragrant and, and there's like, I don't know, tens of thousands of different species, Feinbos it's called. Uh, it's just like a, um, not really a genus, but it, it's a, you know, a type of, uh, of plant diversity. And uh, people have been using that in like rooibos. People might know rooibos from, you know, the red bush tea. We're trying to use these things which are uniquely South African in their beers. But what's happened, and this is something, and I also, I wrote a, a piece for Good Beer Hunting last year, which also won uh, an award in the um, the North American Guild of Beer Writers, about people embracing traditional African beer. So the traditional African beer, and it goes back millennia, nobody knows how far because nothing's ever been written about it. You know, it had an oral history which has been lost, but it is, it's like this, the beer that you see in hieroglyphics. It's thick and it's gritty and grainy. It's spontaneously fermented, so obviously it's quite sour. It is worlds apart from beer as we know it. And when people try it for the first time, they're like, oh my God, what is this? Because it's kind of this weird pinkish, grayish color and it's got bits of grain floating in it, you know. But recently there's been an interest in bringing that into craft beer. And, and you know, there's a, a, a brewery in Cape Town um, he's from Zimbabwe originally, and he grew up, you know, seeing his grandmother brew traditional beer, and he wants to bring that to his beers. But he knows that people don't necessarily love that beer, so then he, so it, it uses sorghum as the as the base of of traditional Southern African beer, and um, and so he does a saison with sorghum. Uh, it's like he uses forty or fifty percent sorghum in the grain bill. So there's been a real increase in that, which for me is the most exciting area. So I think very long winded. I apologise. Um, response to your question is that I think in the next year or two, exciting new styles are going to come out of South Africa. Just people are just still kind of working on how does this translate from this traditional weird porridge-like sour traditional beer into something that craft beer drinkers want to drink. And, and people are working on it and tweaking and trying different styles and seeing what works and what doesn't. And I reckon in the next couple of years, there's going to be something, you know, they're, they're going to sort of nail it and be like, okay, this is our this is our contribution to the, uh, the global craft beer table. There's, there's a lot to come out of South Africa. We've been held back for a couple of years and hopefully next year will be our year. <laughs> that's wonderful. And that's a really great aspect of some type of maturation in a sense is now we're seeing cultural confidence come through in these beverages and it's not emulation of something from somewhere else. Now there's local identity being placed in these beverages and a desire to share something that is yours instead of your interpretation of someone else's traditions. Yeah, I think you nailed it. Hey, cultural cultural confidence. I love that. I'm going to steal that and use that in an article at some point. I will, I will credit you there. But I think that's exactly what it is. For the longest time, it's like, oh, well, you know, Ireland does great dry stout, so we must do that. Or Germany does great vice beer, so we must do that. Or America's pumpkin IPAs, so we must do that. And, it, and it's taken a good while before people are like, but what are we, like, you know, we're not Irish and we're not American. And we, we need to be, and we have this very long heritage of beer brewing, very different beer, obviously, but there's got to be some way of marrying that and honouring that. And it's actually the, the you know, traditional African beer is kind of, it's an endangered species because people are not brewing it the way, you know, it's the extent that they used to. So this relatively recent sort of renewed interest is, is great from a point of view of preserving that that tradition as well, that history. So yeah, it's something I'm actually really passionate about is this and it's the the traditional beer, I won't lie, it is an acquired taste. And I'm still acquiring it. <laughs> I, I definitely enjoy it a lot more than I used to. I went to a, a, a tasting quite recently of different traditional beers and there was one and I was like, I actually could sit and drink this. But it, it's quite, it's a huge leap from everything you know about beer, basically. <laughs> you know, it's it's not served chilled and it's not carbonated and it's not filtered and it's not clear. <laughs> It's it's um, yeah it's 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 very different, but um, if we can just embrace that and find a way to bring it to a wider audience, I think it's going to be phenomenal. That's really exciting, Lucy. Thank you so much for joining us on Heavy Hops and for sharing all your experience and stories and observations as well. Thank you so much. I hope I didn't ramble on too much. I tend to get extremely passionate about certain topics. <laughs> I don't know when to stop. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. Thank you. Cheers, thanks.